0: In a way, you can like bank resilience. And so if when things are going well and your environment is not stressing you out, if you're sleeping at consistent bedtimes and wake times and getting enough sleep, when something happens that's acutely traumatic, even if your sleep totally falls apart then right you're getting like random bedtimes and wake times not enough sleep it it will have been protective and your mental health will be significantly better than if you're ignoring it during the good times
1: dear balancer i know you're a determined person on the lookout for ways to live a more fulfilling and balanced life but you're busy and if we're being honest that busyness often comes at the expense of your priorities The Balance Theory podcast is made to teach busy bees just like you how to find and own your own definition of balance so that you can become unapologetic in how you choose to spend your time. I'm your host, Erica, and together, let's find your unique balance. Alrighty, Balancers, today we're joined by the Senior VP of Research and Data Science from WHOOP. Joining us all the way from Boston, I have Emily Capodilupo on the show today. Emily, a warm welcome to the Balance Theory. It's so nice to have you on today.
0: Thanks for having me, Erica.
1: No worries. Now, I, just for a bit of context for everyone listening, I have been using my WOOP for maybe two months now. And to be completely honest, the best part about it has been for me personally, the sleep side of things. So I'm really excited to have someone from the team today to not only chat through, I suppose, how that works, but more importantly, on sleep itself. Um, And before we dive into, I guess, all your expertise and knowledge in the space, tell us a little bit about who you are and and what you do. Sure.
0: Um, So I've been at WHOOP for a little bit over nine years. Um, So I was the first person in the data science and research department and had the really fun journey of of growing the team um, to what it is now. Uh, but before that, my background is actually in sleep research. So I worked at one of Harvard's hospitals, Brigham Women's Hospital, uh, studying sleep medicine under uh, Dr. Charles Seisler and Dr. Woody Hastings, um, who, you know, big kind of giants in the field. And so, um, you know, have had really cool opportunities to study sleep, um, you know, both in the academic setting and then now more in this like applied setting with all of the data that we get from woop.
1: Awesome. And um, so how does it work? Do you study, like, did you go to university studying general science and then sort of specialize or did you always know this was an area you wanted to go in?
0: Yeah. So when I was in university, I studied neurobiology and I figured out really early on, like my first year, that I was just absolutely fascinated with sleep because I this was like a totally random, like offhand comment that kind of changed my life. But uh, one of my professors pointed out that even though we spend about a third of our lives asleep, nobody actually really knows why, like why we sleep. And that was just kind of this moment of like, wait, I love sleeping. And you're right. Like, I have no idea. It's like, and you know that like we we eat, right? Because that's how we get like the energy. And like that pathway is like very well understood. How our food is like broken down into energy and powers everything in our lives. But sleep is actually like really poorly understood. Um, and there's literally nothing that even comes close to like a third of our lives that we're like, I have no idea why I do this, but otherwise I get very sleepy, so I do it. Um, and what's kind of really fascinating with sleep, right, is that you know, every single, even like single-celled organisms do something that looks like sleep. Like they have quiet periods, like plants have like, you know, quiet periods that look like sleep. And so sleep has independently evolved, you know, multiple times. It's completely ubiquitous across all organisms. And so it must be super duper important. And I was just like, all right, I need to understand this. This is cool. Um, And, you know, that was... (laughs) 14 years ago and um, still studying sleep and uh, still totally obsessed with the space.
1: That's awesome. And I can't wait to hear, I guess, a very high level summary of some of the things you've picked up throughout those studies. Um, One thing I noted that you did actually study was this idea, which, oh, this topic that I haven't actually heard of. And I'd love for you to share like what it actually means called circadian biology. Can you talk to us a little Mm -hmm. bit about that?
0: Yeah. So your circadian rhythm is like your 24 hour cycle and it dictates, it's like a hormonal cycle and it dictates most of what we do, kind of most famously your sleep wake cycle. But it also dictates like, um, you know, like our hair and nail growth happens unevenly throughout 24 hours and digestion and different things like that. Um, and, you know, for example, when you get jet lagged, because you travel across time zones, you disrupt your circadian rhythm. And that's sort of why you can, you know, feel kind of off until, uh, you adjust to the new time zone. But, you know, circadian biology is, uh, you know, it's just the study of these biological rhythms and specifically these roughly 24 hour biological rhythms that, um, and my focus when in that was sort of the circadian relationship to sleep and wake. Um, but it, it can encompass a lot of other things as well.
1: Yeah, awesome. That was more of a, a personal question from me. But now I think onto something that <laughs> I think a lot of people will be interested in are actually the stages of sleep. So this was something that I became educated on. I mean, I'd heard it off off the cusp in in the past, but really started to understand on a deeper level when I started to really go into the back end of the whoop analytics. Mm-hmm. You know, when you when you get that The metric in the morning or the sleep report, it's not just, oh, great sleep or bad sleep. It gives you a full range within each area of sleep. So would you mind just breaking those down for everyone so they can understand the function and why we have different stages of sleep?
0: Sure. Yeah. And it helps to have a tiny bit of background before I jump in there. So in the 1960s, when we invented EEGs and we started measuring sleep, researchers were looking for ways to kind of talk about sort of, they quickly realized that sleep wasn't just like one thing. Like we sort of experience sleep as like, I'm awake and now I'm asleep. But sleep actually has a whole bunch of uh, what we call like stages or phases um, that serve unique physiological purposes. And as people, you know, sleep researchers, um, I guess going back 60, 70 years now, like started to like see these different patterns, they needed, you know, a way to talk about them or to quantify how much and when those different stages were showing up. And it did take a little bit of time for there to get consensus and everyone to agree on which stages are which. So most people, when they talk about sleep, think of four stages. So wake, which is sort of the absence of sleep, light sleep, slow wave sleep, and REM sleep. Um, And then you do, and I'll get into those in a second, but then you do also hear about something called like N1 sleep, which is this, like you only spend about five minutes or so in it. And it's like the transition state between sleep and wake. Um, Whoop doesn't talk about N1 sleep. None of the other wearables do. um, And it's kind of going out of favor. But if you read some of the older sleep literature, you will see that fifth stage. Um, But the kind of other than wake, the three sleep stages that um, sort of have become more or less agreed upon at this point uh, within the sleep community are so light sleep is sort of your general purpose. Um, like it's restful, it's restorative um, but it's not super efficient at any one specific thing. And then sort of slow wave and REM sleep you can think about as like your deeper restorative types of sleep where slow wave sleep is physically restorative, so that's when we do, Uh, We produce like 95% of human growth hormone during slow-wave sleep. So if you had a really tough workout, you're actually going to get more slow-wave sleep that night because your body needs to physically repair from the day. And REM sleep is the mentally restorative phase of sleep. So if you actually like study a lot, like for all the students out there, or like have a very mentally taxing day or stressful day, you see that people actually will get more REM sleep at night because... REM sleep is when we sort of process everything that happened to us. It's also when we take short-term memories from the day and consolidate them into long-term memories that, you know, we get to keep, you know, hopefully long into the future. Um, and so we kind of throughout sleep will cycle uh, roughly 90 minute cycles between like light sleep, slow wave sleep, light sleep, REM sleep, and then like repeat that cycle uh, over and over yeah. again.
1: Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And and I find it quite fascinating learning about the functions of each stage of sleep. Um, And I guess tied to this is if you have, let's say, a really short short night of sleep or a very restless night of sleep, is there one area in particular that's generally jeopardized? Or is it more individualized and kind of people may have more deep sleep if they're um, you know, super tired and have a short amount of sleep or if they're going to be really hung over the next day, like, you know, which areas sort of compromised when we lose that quality of sleep?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. It's a really interesting area of study because these different phases do serve different purposes. So typically slow wave sleep is like a little bit front loaded. So we get more slow wave sleep at the beginning of the sleep and then less later on. And then REM sleep does the opposite. Um, so you get more REM sleep, like per hour, the longer you go into your sleep. And so what we see is when people like wake up early, you know, it's like you're used to waking up at eight, but you, you know, set your alarm for six. And so you get up two hours earlier than usual. You're disproportionately in those like two hours of sleep that you didn't get, you're disproportionately cutting off REM sleep. And, and so that gets like more impacted. But we also can see the opposite where like if you're drunk when you go to bed um, or even just like mildly tipsy, uh, so you're sedated from the alcohol, that alcohol is going to be processed and out of your system within a couple of hours. But like you miss that beginning of sleep when you get a lot of slow wave sleep. And so that can be more affected. Um, And then we also see more kind of like broadly, like if you don't feel safe in your sleeping environment, we tend to not get as much slow-wave sleep um, because during slow-wave sleep we're very unresponsive to our environment and so our bodies like don't let us go like totally comatose. (laughs) Um, And so you see that like when people are um, like stressed out or something like that or in a new environment like in a hotel or something like that they actually get um, less slow-wave sleep than they do when they're, you know, home and in their bed with their partners where everything's, like, familiar and happy. Um, And so, and there's, like, real consequences to stuff like this, especially if you think about things like, you know, athletes traveling for competition where they're doing things that are very physically demanding for their bodies and they need that slow-wave sleep. Um, But the good news is, is there's a lot of different tricks you can use to overcome that. So, like, you can make the environment feel more familiar by, like, you know, bringing your pillow or like creating a bedtime ritual, so it'll feel familiar. Um, stuff like yeah,
1: that. yeah, awesome. I love. I always love hearing the science behind uh, the facts because, like, on my end, my girlfriend and I have always said that every time we travel, the first night in a new hotel is always such a bad sleep for both of us. Yeah. And now understanding like the science behind it, it makes so much sense why your body wouldn't let you relax and like kind of fully feel secure in a vulnerable state such as sleep. So um, thank you for sharing that. And I suppose like an offshoot of uh, the research and the work you do and your knowledge is um, a recent study you guys did, uh, I think it was during COVID, which looked at the correlation between sleep and mental health, which is something I'm Mm -hmm. very, very interested in. So I'd love for you to share just, I guess, some main takeaways from that study and I guess we can just go into whatever pops up from there.
0: Yeah, I mean, this was probably one of the most interesting projects I've ever worked on. But we we partnered with Harvard University, uh, actually with uh, Monash University in Melbourne. Um, so uh, working with, yeah, close to home for you guys, uh, as well as the Center for Disease Control and Prevention uh, here in the U.S. And we put together this survey. It was about 45 minutes worth of questions. It was a big ask. Um, we covered everything from like really trying to understand how everybody's mental health was doing, um, and then also things like what kind of exposure to the pandemic they had. So things like, you know, did you lose your job? Have you lost any loved ones? Have you had COVID? You know, were you hospitalized? All those kinds of different questions. Um, and then we, you know, we, we fielded this survey among WHOOP members. And so we were able to look at their WHOOP data you know, up to, uh, we looked, I guess it was about a year before the pandemic started all the way up through June uh, of 2022. So we were looking um, about roughly three months into the pandemic. And what we found that was absolutely fascinating and, you know, totally novel, nobody had ever demonstrated this before, is that the way that you were sleeping the first 10 weeks of 2020, so from you know, January 1st, through mid-March. And we chose those as basically right before the pandemic started. Um, And certainly like before it was in the U.S., before anybody would have been, you know, social distancing and masking and, you know, sent home from work or anything like that. Um, And then we compared that to um, like sort of the first 10 weeks after lockdown started. Um, And the people who were sleeping well in you know, those first 10 weeks before the pandemic started. Uh, And we looked both at getting enough sleep as well as sleeping at consistent bedtimes and wake times. Had better mental health uh, at the end of June 2020 than people who, like, weren't getting enough sleep in those first 10 weeks. Even if the people who were getting sufficient sleep pre-pandemic sort of lost that in all of the chaos and, um, you know, mental health challenges of the pandemic. And so what it suggests is that in a way you can like bank resilience. And so if when things are going well and your environment is not stressing you out, if you're sleeping at consistent bedtimes and wake times and getting enough sleep, when something happens that's acutely traumatic even if your sleep totally falls apart, then right, you're getting like random bedtimes and wake times, not enough sleep, it it will have been protective and your mental health will be significantly better than if you're ignoring it during the good times. And that was really promising because it suggests that like, you know, it's okay to fall apart a little bit. And that we can like, (laughs) you know, Can can, you know, lean back and and rely on sort of the good work that you've been doing. And it also, um, I think, changes the narrative a little bit around sleep because it's actually widely believed that you can't bank sleep. Um, You know, we bank food all the time. That's what fat is. Um, And we can like bank hydration, right? We can like drink a little bit extra before we go for a run and then like feel better than if we didn't have a glass of water first. But it was largely understood that you can't bank sleep. Um, And this data totally proves that wrong. And and we actually, uh, I can't talk too much about it yet, because it's not published, but um, we are in the process of reproducing that study with another cohort. Um, And and so far, uh, it looks like that we're going to be able to reproduce those results, which we're really excited about. um, Because it, it totally... I think, like, so many of us have had this attitude of, like, oh, I'm on vacation. I can stay up until 3 a.m. and it doesn't matter because, like, I don't have to work tomorrow or whatever. But, you know, this sort of suggests that, like, it's really important consistent sleep, wake times, uh, consistently getting enough sleep. And then, if you have, you know, God forbid, in an unfortunate situation, um, that that's very meaningfully protective.
1: Yeah, no, I love that, and it's kind of this idea that you can be proactive when it comes to sleep. If if you know the theory of it banking up is holds longevity, I, I love that, and it also respects that you know you're a human, and just because you're going through something terrible and you're having bad sleep, it doesn't mean you're doing it all wrong. Like it, it's kind of like yeah. yeah, that's a byproduct of how you're protective body sometimes kicks in, like when you're in a new, new space and you feel unsecure and you're not going to get that slow wave sleep as much. You don't have to be too panicked about that, provided, you know, you can kind of prioritize your sleep otherwise mm-hmm. um, i think this is probably a good moment for me to stop and ask you i've got a couple listener questions i put up a little Perfect. box on my social media and and they came through with some questions and one of them was what is the optimal time we need to sleep is this something that's individualized or is there a stock standard amount of hours that everybody should be getting
0: it's a great question um and there's you know, you're going to hear things like eight hours, right? And that's like a good on average ballpark, but it's very individualized. Um, You know, and it it also changes like women actually need a little bit more sleep than men do. And as we age, um, we need a little bit less sleep. Um, You know, it's it's very extreme throughout childhood, right? Newborns are sleeping 20 hours a day. Um, You know, teenagers probably need something like 10 hours uh, and then it sort of declines as we get into like middle age and stuff towards something close to like seven hours. Um, So, you know, your activity level is going to determine how much sleep you need with more active people need more sleep because they are asking more of their bodies. Obviously, we've all felt that like when you're sick or something like that, you need more sleep in order to facilitate that recovery. But even sort of like healthy baseline, there are genetic differences um, that make some people need more sleep than others. And then there's also on top of that, all kinds of environmental factors, epigenetic factors, different things that make some people better at sleep than others. So if I spend eight hours in bed, according to my WHOOP data, I tend to get about seven and a half hours of sleep and that's normal. But different people, some people are going to get in bed for eight hours and get really close to eight hours of sleep. Some people are going to spend eight hours in bed and get, you know, five and a half hours of sleep, right? That's not healthy and, and there's a lot of things you can do to fix that. But there's sort of two important factors, right? There's how much time do you actually need to be asleep? And then also there's a lot of individualization in terms of how much time will it take you to get that amount of sleep. And so everybody's going to need a different amount of, you know, from bedtime to wake time in order to get there, uh, you know, fulfill that biological need for, for both of those reasons. And one of the things that, you know, we do at WHOOP is we do track those things separately. So we'll track like time in bed. And then we also track time asleep so that we can coach you in order to get the right amount of time in bed in order to get the right amount of time asleep, um, both of which are completely individualized.
1: Yeah, and and I love that because, like, you know, if I'm exercising Monday to Friday, then I'm asking more of my body than I am, say, on a Saturday. So even for Mm. the individual person, day-to-day could look very different. But what I really like about the WHOOP is because I track everything and obviously it tracks your heart rate all day long and you track your exercise. I love when I go to put my alarm on and it gives me, like, a suggested time in bed to be able to hit peak recovery or, you know, I can put in like I need to get up at 6 a.m. and it says, well, great, then you're going to be at 80% recovered tomorrow. So it does give mm-hmm. you that real-time information on a day-to-day basis, acknowledging the fact that not only is everyone so different because of epigenetics and their output, but every single day also looks different too. So, um, yes, no one split answer for that. But I suppose if, you know, you feel great when you have seven hours sleep, then that's probably a good amount of time For you, Mm -hmm. Um, I'll I'll throw in one more listener question here before I ask you my next question. Um, And that was, I've heard that there are benefits to getting more hours before midnight or in bed earlier on on the earlier side of midnight. Is it true that those hours are better, like for sleeping?
0: Yeah, there's like a common myth, they call it beauty sleep, which is like the sleep that happens before midnight. And people say that it counts double or something like that. Um, That's not true. Um, What is true is that when you sleep in accordance with your circadian rhythm, and so you're having a consistent sleep time and wake time, you're going to have higher quality sleep. So we were just talking about how like some people can spend eight hours in bed and get eight hours of sleep and other people spend eight hours in bed and get six hours of sleep. Well, when you're sleeping and getting up at the same time each day, you're going to end up getting more sleep per time in bed, so more efficient sleep. Um, and so what, what tends to be like less good sleep is if you're typically going to bed at, you know, say 10 PM, but then on the weekends you're partying, you're going to bed at say three, like that sleep is going to be, um, low, much lower quality sleep. Um, because it's, your body's not like hormonally prepared for you to be going to bed at three. And so now it's like kind of almost, like playing catch up and trying to figure out what's going on and like all thrown off. And so that tends to be like lower quality sleep. And so it's, there's nothing magical about midnight as a cutoff. Um, But it is true that like the more consistent your sleeps are, uh, the higher quality they're going to be. And so, you know, per minute spent in bed, you're going to get more like return on that investment.
1: Yeah, yeah. So let's say for somebody listening who's a bit more of a night person, if they're going to bed at midnight every night and waking up at 8 a.m. every day and that's consistent, then as long mm-hmm. as they're within that parameter, then that's they're going to be their efficient, consistent time frame.
0: Yeah, and that's called chronotype. So it's like your preferred sleep-wake time. So some people are night owls and they like to go to bed at midnight every day and some people what they call larks that like to go to bed at like 8 p.m. Uh, and then wake up early. And there's nothing better or worse about being, you know, one chronotype versus the other. Um, And it's actually best to not fight your chronotype. So, um, you know, the more you're sort of aligned with what your body's natural tendencies are,
1: the better you're going to sleep.
0: Um, So if for you that's midnight, um, I wouldn't be afraid of that.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Great tip. Um, Speaking of tips, do you have any specific, I mean, I know you said something briefly before about like, particularly when you're in like a new environment, how you can make them more comfortable and optimize your sleep. But I'm talking about maybe optimizing sleep and recovery for peak performance. So do you have any Mm -hmm. specific tips on how we can do that with our sleep? Maybe it's a nighttime ritual or just something we can do during the day to prepare ourselves for the evening. I'll hand it over to you. Yeah,
0: so a couple different things. So the more you ritualize sleep, kind of the trick to sleep is you want to be like, very clear with your body, like hint, hint, I'm going to sleep soon because, um, the sort of hormone that helps us transition from awake to asleep is called melatonin. And it takes us about two hours from when we're like, okay, we should start producing melatonin to like when we have enough melatonin that we can like, you know, cross that bridge from awake to sleep. And so if in the two hours before you want to go to bed, you're like hinting to your body, sleep is coming, you get your body to start producing that melatonin so that when you get in bed, you're like right at that threshold and can fall asleep quickly. Um, And so, you know, doing things like having pajamas, you know, so clothing that you only wear to sleep and not doing things like, you know, just sleeping in, you know, your undershirt and boxers that you've been wearing all day. Um, Things like, you know, if you're spiritual at all, like when you, you know, a lot of people for a long time have like prayed before bed. And like one of the things that that does is it creates ritual. And so if that's, you know, prayer isn't your thing, right? Journaling, meditating, even just like reflecting on the day, practicing gratitude, any of those things that just create like a nighttime ritual um, are all very good. And then there's a lot of things that we kind of do <laughs> that are ritualistic that we don't even think about, right? Like before I go to bed, I wash my face, I brush my teeth, right? And like even those little things kind of create that that cue, Um, and then you also want to be not doing things that are counterproductive. So if you're exercising really, really close to bedtime, um, you know, you're going to create all of these, (laughs) like, you know, all this, just simulate yourself. That's going to suppress the melatonin production. And then it's going to be harder to turn off. You're also like raising your core body temperature from exercising, which is counterproductive to falling asleep. Um, and then you also don't want to be like eating really close to bedtime, um, and um, like screen time anything that's going to be very stimulating is going to suppress melatonin and make it harder to fall asleep.
1: Yeah, no, I love that. R- ritualizing your bedtime, and often we go on and on and on about a morning routine, but I think having an equal importance on a night routine is so important. Yeah just to get you into that mellow state before bed. I know for me personally, that's reading on my Kindle with the brightness all the way down. It's something I love doing, obviously, washing my face, brushing my teeth too. Um, And I was going to actually ask you about eating very close to bedtime. So are there any foods that really wouldn't interrupt that melatonin preparation for bed say you're having like a little bit of hunger late at night or do you think that just by activating the digestive system it it is a little bit counterintuitive to prepping for sleep in general
0: no i mean it's a great question and there's a balancing act here because being hungry is also stimulating because it like stimulates us to go search for food
1: Um, so you want to you want to deal with that
0: (laughs) yeah so you don't want to like go to bed super hungry Um, and this is actually, you know, there's a lot we can learn from what we do with our infants. Um, there's a reason why people give little kids like a warm bottle before bed, um, that like, so having something that's warm, super easy to digest, and then gives you like a little bit of calories, like does actually help you sleep because now like your needs are met so your body can relax. Um, -hmm. and like, it's a big thing. And like, um, like throughout India and parts of Asia right like kind of like, like golden milk right before bed um, and you know warm milk with honey or whatever so like a little bit of fat a little but easy to digest really simple stuff like I wouldn't be eating a sandwich <laughs> um, yeah. or like like junk food. Um, you know anything that's gonna be like super high sugar, I think you know is gonna gonna stimulate you but um, you definitely want to have if you are hungry, enough to take that edge off. Um, I spoke to years ago, um, Eric Vent, who is uh, an American Olympic swimmer. He ran or swam the relays with Michael Phelps back in 2008 um, and 2012. But he said that when he was training for the Olympics, he used to wake up at 3 a.m. starving and he would eat a pint of ice cream every night at 3 a.m. because he was so hungry and then, like, go back to bed and finish sleeping. And I just remember thinking, like, that was the most, like, hilarious, but also kind of, like, I just couldn't imagine doing that uh, ever. Um, And that that would make me feel good. But he said that, like, he just, you know, needed those 1,000 calories in the middle of the night. Um, And so, you know, if you are training that hard um, and you need – you know that many calories. Like you definitely want to get those in before bed because, like, mm-hmm. disrupting your sleep in the middle of the night is probably not great. Um, but yeah, I would I probably wouldn't recommend going to bed super hungry.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, not not a tip I thought I would ever hear coming out of like a, an Olympian's mouth. But uh, hey, if, if no, you're gonna if wake you're not up for anything in the middle of the, night. <laughs> if you're gonna wake up for anything in the middle of the night, it may as well be ice cream, right? <laughs>
0: Might as well. Um, Yeah, but I mean, this guy's got multiple gold medals. So clearly something was working for him. And, you know, it's a great example of sometimes you need to listen to your body and do something that like, nobody in their right mind would ever recommend, but clearly was working for him. Um, But, you know, I think there's also room to think about what you're eating, you know, if this is happening to you constantly, and you're not like an Eric vent type, that's just truly burning, you know, 20,000 calories a day. Um, you know, thinking about eating foods, like more complex carbs during the day that are going to be slow release because some, there might be like a reason related to your diet that like you are getting hungry, you know, late at night. And so if you feel like you're not crazy active um, and you're getting enough calories during the day, you know, it's worth kind of thinking about, well, am I getting the right kinds of calories that are going to help me like enough protein, enough complex carbs that it's going to like sustain that feeling of, being satiated uh through the night so that like you don't have to then have like a big snack right before bed
1: yeah yeah absolutely i think um, i've got time to ask you a couple more listener questions that came through um one i'm glad somebody asked because it's something i've actually always wanted to know and it's about napping are naps beneficial um or are they an indication that we have not had enough sleep
0: so for the most part, like feeling like you need to nap is an indication that you didn't get enough nighttime sleep. That doesn't make them bad because being sleep deprived is bad. And so naps are your absolute best technique if you find yourself sleep deprived to get rid of and that sleep And to increase
1: the bank, the sleep bank, right? <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, but there are a couple of important ground rules with napping. Um, you don't want to nap within seven hours of bedtime. Um, because Mm -hmm. it can make it harder to fall asleep that night. And if you really, really feel like you need to, you want to try and keep the nap as short as possible, not like go to bed and let yourself sleep until you naturally wake up. Because what can happen then is you're going to make it really hard to fall asleep because you won't be tired enough at night. And then like the cycle repeats itself because you'll roll around unable to fall asleep. So you'll wake up exhausted and then you'll need a nap. Um, So you do kind of want to break that cycle. And so one way is um, to keep the nap short. Um, Typically like under two hours is probably, you know, obviously there's exceptions. Like when you're sick, um, you're typically so tired that you can just, you know, get as much sleep as you possibly can. And and that's going to be a good thing. But if it's just like, you know, I woke up really early and now I'm tired and I have some time this afternoon, um, you know, keeping the nap under two hours is usually a good idea, but keeping it around 90 minutes. So it's a full sleep cycle is actually better than like a random amount of time. So if you get that full sleep cycle, you'll get a little bit of slow wave, a little bit of REM sleep, and that's going to be more satisfying than like, if you have a 20 minute nap, you tend to wake up like right when you're hitting that like first deep sleep stage. And it can actually leave you feeling more groggy. Um, because you have what they call like sleep inertia, which is like once your body's asleep, it wants to stay asleep. Um, so having the complete sleep cycle is going to make it easier to wake up at the end of the nap. Um, and then, um, you know, it's a yeah, not not too close to bedtime, roughly one sleep cycle, and. Um, you know, i'd say like the, the one exception that actually there's been some interesting research on is for elite athletes who practice twice a day um because if you have a full sleep cycle in your nap and you get a little bit of slow wave sleep you can you know recover from the first workout before doing the second you can actually pretty meaningfully boost performance in the second workout um, and then get like more out of it so for um people who are training very seriously um, using a nap, even if like, you're not exhausted can actually be very strategic for performance. Um, but other than that, I mean, I'd say napping is not being sleep deprived is very important. And so if you can't get all the sleep at night, getting it through the nap is, is totally fine.
1: It's a good strategy to, to recoup hours I'm hearing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> awesome. All right, and the last listener question we had, uh, this was a little bit more granular, a little bit more specific. Um, It was about recovery for glandular fever. So from uh, I've not had glandular fever, but from what I understand, you get extremely exhausted. And um, this Mm -hmm. question came from a listener who is not a regular napper, and they're just asking, um, you know, what is the best type of recovery for glandular fever? I'm I'm obviously asking this within the context of of your expertise um, with sleep.
0: Yeah, well, I'm not a medical doctor, so I don't want to comment on glandular fever in particular. Um, But when, you know, when we are sick, sort of regardless of why we're sick, uh, we do actually need a lot more sleep. And so making sure that you're being nice to your body um, and allowing it to have as much sleep as it seems to be asking for um, is going to be the best thing you can possibly do. And, you know, I wouldn't worry too much about you're not getting you know your steps in or anything like that during that time um, what our immune system is an extremely greedy engine it uses a ton of resources and it's a little like the reason why we get so tired when we're sick is because we're putting so much energy into our immune system and so the best thing you can possibly do to like let that engine do its thing is to sleep so that your body's not trying to compete you know by putting, all that energy into other activities. And so um, whether it's glandular fever, which, you know, I I certainly don't pretend to know anything about specifically um, or, or anything else, I'd say, you know, get as much sleep as your body seems to be asking for because it's asking for it to power your immune system and fight off the infection
1: yeah absolutely i think um i think this question actually leads me to ask you something interesting as well and i know a lot of people struggle to nap when they feel like they want (laughs) to so is there a benefit to just laying there with your eyes closed and being in that restful sort of space where you're not really in a deep sleep but i wouldn't necessarily say you're awake either it's almost like you're trying to fall asleep and you're daydreaming but with your eyes closed if that makes sense is there any benefit to that kind of approach
0: Totally makes sense. I've uh, totally been there, done that. A hundred percent. That that sort of like restful quietness um, has been shown to be beneficial. And one of the things that's actually interesting about it is you actually we think of sleep wake as like this you know binary switch where it's like you're one or the other, but there actually are these kind of in between states. And so when you're in that kind of almost asleep kind of whatever state, you do start to see pockets of brain activity that look a lot like sleep. And so you are, you're not getting the benefits of full blown sleep, but you're getting something. Um, and you know, even just sort of like letting your muscles relax and like, you know, closing your eyes and like all of those things, like turning off a little bit, um, you know, can, can be very beneficial. And then I'd say, um, while all of that is true, It's also the case that if you're struggling to nap, you want to think about like, am I creating an environment that is maximally conducive to that nap? So like, you know, a lot of people will just like put their head down on their desk or something and it's like, well, of course you can't fall asleep, right? That's, we're not really meant to like sleep in a chair. Um, So, you know, get in (laughs) bed, you know, make sure it's dark, make sure it's quiet. Change right, like don't be in you know, jeans and you know your your button down. That's like not super comfy. Like, um, and then like really give yourself a proper shot at falling asleep. Um, mm. And
1: bring up the ritual.
0: Yeah, <laughs> for sure. And but the data definitely supports that. That is that's non zero benefit. It, it is real.
1: Well, that's good, I suppose, even for the, that person listening um, who has, you know, struggling with glandular fever recovery and, and can't nap if you are feeling exhausted. Just knowing that that restful lying down is still somewhat mm-hmm. beneficial, I think I think is good. And and I know a lot of people listening struggle to nap because they're just thinking about falling asleep and then they kind of go on this vicious cycle. So I think that's that's um, great information that I didn't know before and, and all tips I'm glad to be armed with. Um, Emily I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing not only your expertise and knowledge but uh, you know delighting us all with sleep tips Um, of course for anybody listening who wants to check out the whoop I'm going to pop some links not only to their Instagram but to a link in the show notes where you can actually sign up and get your first month free Um, but thank you so much Emily it's been a pleasure chatting and getting to know you and just chatting about all things sleep today thanks so much for having me